there. I'm Jimmy Shuker alongside Albert Chalmers and this is Radiant Light, a spiritual discussion podcast, episode two, The Buddha's Four Noble Truths. Before we begin this week's episode, Albert and I would like to give you a brief summary of the life of Siddhartha Gautama, known today as the Buddha. Most historians agree that Siddhartha Gautama was born near the border of modern-day Nepal and India, sometime around the year 560 BC. Son of the king and queen of the Shakya clan, the young prince was prophesied to become a great emperor if he remained in the palace, but should he ever leave, would become the spiritual leader of the entire world. This prophecy caused the king to imprison Siddhartha and send away all sick and elderly servants to shelter the young prince from any awareness of suffering. As a result, Siddhartha was unaware of the existence of both pain and death. When Siddhartha was 29 years of age, a musician travelled to the palace and informed him of the wonders of the outside world. Siddhartha then left the palace, as well as his wife and son behind, to explore. He soon came across a sick man, an elderly man, a dead man, and eventually a hermit. This hermit explained that he had renounced his worldly possessions to take on a life of asceticism to seek spiritual enlightenment. This in turn inspired Siddhartha to go on a spiritual quest of his own, and he would spend six years dwelling in the forest seeking an escape to life's suffering. After failing to achieve enlightenment, Siddhartha abandoned his aesthetic practice and sat down under a banyan tree, vowing not to leave until he was awakened. After a night of meditation, the morning star rose, upon which time Siddhartha Gautama realized Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, highest perfect awakening, and attained Buddhahood. After 49 days of bliss, he returned to his fellow aesthetics at Deer Park and proceeded to give his first Dharma talk. He preached the Four Noble Truths and the Middle Way, which lies between indulgence and austerity, also known as the Noble Eightfold Path, which he taught for the next 45 years. I only teach suffering and the transformation of suffering. We will now discuss these four noble truths in further detail. Albert, what are the Buddha's four noble truths? Noble truth number one is that life is suffering. Truth number two is that we suffer because we desire. The third noble truth is that there is a way of transforming our suffering. And the fourth noble truth is that the noble eightfold path will lead us towards enlightenment. Well, let's start with number one then. Life is suffering. What's the truth in this? This is the conundrum that set Buddha on his journey. So it's only true in as much as he saw the suffering in the world. But it's not inherent in that it should always be true. It's just a starting point. Do you feel like a lot of people are stuck in their suffering today, in today's day and age? 
I think it's common to get stuck in that victim mentality and point out the problems in life and the problems and why we suffer, but not in a constructive way, but just in a, well, I guess now I can be bitter and hold on to trauma, past memories that bring up bad things. And I think people are attracted to drama, you know? TV shows that are dramatic. So you mentioned these TV shows. Where did I see this? It might have just been some random meme, actually. But there was an image of suffering. And a, it was a, a man laying on a couch, getting fat, eating fast food, watching the TV. And then the other picture just said, suffering. And it was a guy in the gym, pushing weights, getting better, looking good. And then at the bottom, it just said, the choice is yours. Is that kind of an example of the... Like never... no pain, no gain? Kind of? Well, yeah, that's what it's getting at, yeah. But the way I'm applying this to Buddhism and what we're learning is, you know, suffering's inevitable. You can sit there and lay on the couch all day and become overweight and eat the wrong things. You're going to suffer. Or... You can go into the gym, you can, I mean, the gym is just one example of it. You know, you can go for a run in the forest, you can go to a yoga studio. It's going to be physically painful and you're still going to suffer, but you're going to get a, a better end result. There's inevitable suffering There's in the world. There's different kinds of suffering. But I think Buddha, his main thesis statement was, I teach only suffering and the transformation of suffering. So it's not just that life is suffering and, you know, half glass empty kind of outlook. It's the suffering is the beautiful thing that turns you towards transformation. Mm. Without the suffering, you wouldn't know that there is well-being because if you've not suffered, how could you ever know what it means to feel well or whole? You know, it's, it's inevitably pointing you towards the right path. Yeah, absolutely. The yin without the yang, that's what you're saying. Yeah. I think it's important to suffer, to actually understand that people around you are suffering, and you shouldn't just isolate yourself from that the way Buddha's father tried to isolate him when he was young. What do you mean by isolate yourself from that? To hide from it, you know, to run from it. Embrace your suffering is what you're saying. Yeah, you gotta embrace it and incorporate it into your entire being. It's bringing an example to my mind of kind of what I went through a couple of years ago. Actually, you're talking about embracing your suffering. So this is probably the best recent example of how I've applied the little bit about Buddhism that I know to my life in recent years. And I guess you could say transform my suffering. So I went through my divorce a couple of years ago, as you know. And ironically enough, round about that time, that was probably when I was most hot on my meditation. I was regularly meditating 20 minutes, half an hour a day, Sometimes twice a day, you know, I was really, and it really got me through a painful time. 
because you were near to the suffering, so you were so close to it that you could really transform it at that time through the meditation. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think I consciously thought I'm going to transform it. At the time, I happened to be learning a little bit about Buddhism, not much, but the little I did know was a case of live in the present moment, accept what's going on, suffering is going to be all around you, it's inevitable. And I was meditating every day and just accepting that this is the turmoil that I'm living around, you know. My ex-wife is coming into the house, well, once a week, clearing the stuff out of her house. Our, our house, excuse me. I'm at the same time wanting something positive and, you know, clinging on to... It felt like a dark time and you wanted to bring some light to the... to balance it back up, restore the balance. Yeah, I think I just wanted to get through it. What I knew about Buddhism was just accept the moment, live in the now, this is what's going on, just you're going to suffer, sit through it, but do you think, looking back, that you suffered needlessly because you didn't understand, you didn't know how to interpret the, actually what, what was going on, and you just kind of felt it a little bit more? Or do you think that suffering is actually just part of life that has to exist? Had I not learned anything about Buddhism, I just wouldn't have been able to cope. I'd have been getting angry, shouting. I mean, when the relationship was hitting the rocks, I was pretty angry and I was shouting quite a lot. You know, that was off the chart. But when the breakup was clearly happening, you know, when I was going through the process, I just can't believe how calm the Buddhism made me. Not that I was like the smoothest and calmest guy in the world by any stretch of the imagination but a lot calmer than, say, the 20-year-old version of Jimmy would have handled the same circumstances. Do you think that just knowing that Buddha exists was enough to put you on the right direction towards well-being and just knowing that there is a middle way, not knowing exactly what it was, but being aware of it, even subconsciously, kind of, allowed for you to like hope you know just having some kind of hope it gives you hope to know that someone else made it through i mean let, let's face it a lot of people are going through much tougher things than i was going through there's people out there dying in wars and god knows what terrorist attacks so i'd like to think that i would be self-conscious enough to realize that anyway but do you think the people who are in the wars, suffering is so a part of their life that when it happens, they're able to cope with it. Whereas in the West, we're isolated from it until sort of these existential crises happen. And then we're not well equipped to deal with it. We don't have the language or the tools to... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because um, we were like the children growing up inside the walls of the castle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we've got it so comfortable in this part of the world. I heard it said on, on another podcast, I can't remember for the life of me which one, but it was somebody talking of 
a country or a place they'd been to that was effectively a war zone. And they were just shocked at how happy the people were. And they said, well, why are you so happy? And uh, apparently the local person replied, everyone's dying around me every day. What choice have I got to be happy? You know, I could be gone tomorrow. And it's like, wow, that's your outlook in such a horrendous situation. I heard a Buddhist saying that happiness is not the absence of problems. Happiness is the ability to deal with them. The second noble truth is that we suffer because of our cravings. But do we reach out for the cravings and desires that are inappropriate? I've, I've thought about this in a different way, which is that we sin. I, I talked about this the, the first episode about sin. And I'm thinking that sin is probably the wrong word. It's more about something being beneficial or non-beneficial. It's not a thing that you're supposed to think of as like, I'm a bad person because I have this, this desire. This craving. This craving, yeah. It's more just you've created habits that are not beneficial. And that's a way easier way of dealing with it because you're not being hard on yourself. You're just accepting and acknowledging it. And once you've identified it, it's easier to create new habits. Would you feel like in this instance, the uh, the cravings are almost like the same metaphor as what sin is in Christianity? Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Sin is such a condescending way of looking at it. It's very negative. Like, I'm bad. I'm a sinner. I have these cravings, and it's because I'm wrong or I'm fallen. Like, lust, it's a sin. You know, greed, it's a sin. These are These are bad things, but... They're also socially inbred into us, so we don't really know why we are that way. But I feel like naturally we're not that way. I don't agree with that. That's part of our fallen nature. I just I think that we've been told that that's how we're supposed to be. I mean, it's so hard not to crave things these days. I mean, how many of us are just addicted to our iPhones, looking at Facebook and Instagram or whatever? Because yeah. you see it and you think that you want it. But I think once you stop and realize that you don't actually want it. Well, it's just there. It's in your face. It's almost like your brain's being programmed to want it. It's out there in the public domain. Well, it serves somebody. There's a capitalistic machine behind it pushing those things in your face. A major capitalist. And it's quite easy to be receptive to those things. It takes you like being mindful and meditating and taking a step back to realize that your natural self doesn't want those things. I think the whole thing about sin is just feeding into that to say, oh, I want this so bad. I need that because I'm, I'm a sinner. And you know, like when you try to give it up, it gets harder to not want it because you're forcefully trying not to do it. It's like we talked about earlier, like, should we go one way or the other? Well, there's a middle way. You should be able to buy things that you want as long as you're doing it within a mindful, rational way. So what's that mindful, rational way for you? It's like a Zen saying, if you're hungry, eat. 
if you're tired, sleep. But you actually have to eat and just be mindful that you're eating. You're not just shoving food in your face just to fill a craving and then constantly always fulfilling that craving and gets worse, it gets worse, it gets worse. You're creating a bigger void for yourself. You have to follow your natural desires, but do it in a mindful way. I wonder what you said there, a natural mindful way. We're so often trying to multitask as well. We're talking to our friend and we're keeping one eye on our phone and we're eating our food at the same time. It's kind of You're like- not in the moment. Yeah. You do that. Are you enjoying any one of those three things that you're trying to juggle all at the same time? Yeah, and when you have the thing that you wanted, you don't know how to enjoy it because you're not in the moment. You're just looking to the next thing on your checklist. I used to buy books just to fill up my shelf with books that I would one day read, but the time never really came for me to read that book. It would just be a short-term endorphin rush or a dopamine rush or whatever. And then I'm, what am I going to get next? What am I going to... But now I'm trying to do kind of buy one book at a time. And then once I've read that book, and I'm a slow reader, but this is just one way of me practicing this middle way. It's just take that book and enjoy every page. How long it takes is how long it takes. But don't go rush to buy the next book until you've actually fully enjoyed that specific book. And don't rush through the pages just to get it out of the way. Because then what was the point of reading it? You're not really taking it in. You know? This yeah. is hard for me. This is not my nature, but I feel like it actually is more natural. It just took me a long time to realize this. You know, you say it's not your nature. I'm sure I heard this in the Zen Beginners book that you lent me, that it was our nature but we've forgotten our nature and now we're doing something else and we need to remember what our nature is. Yeah, exactly. That's how it really takes hold is you think your nature is one thing, but you realize that you've forgotten your true original mind. Zen mind is the original mind. I guess a newborn child would be the most similar to what a natural mind is. And it's only adults who look at that and say how naive and how foolish and they yeah. can't even speak and they you know well it's funny you should mention children as well i was thinking about that as an example when you talked about wanting the next book on the shelf just to get that endorphin rush of physically getting the book rather than reading it and actually enjoying it i'm kind of looking at kids today but mainly at my own child it's almost like the process of buying the toy and the endorphin rush that she gets from it is kind of like what she's looking for. Because once she's got that toy, yeah, it gets played with five minutes and then it's just chucked away, you know, in the box with all the rest of it. It's, it's kind of like a kid is just a cog in the capitalist wheel and the parent is the one who makes sure the cog keeps spinning because we keep filling those cravings. It's only when we say no and put our foot down that they have to learn boundaries and all that. But it's, I think it's good for us too to learn that we need to set boundaries, but also that 
we have to mindfully spend our money and put, be conscious consumers. But also, it's pretty powerful to see a child, how they can really will what their desire is into existence. It's kind of like they won't take no for an answer. Oh, they do this so well. But that's maybe useful at times as well, because if I really want something, if I just take no for an answer the first time someone says no, then my true desires, my deep desire, whatever that may be, whether it's to make a podcast or whatever, it could be easily beaten out of me by some naysayer that just wants to put me down, you know? And maybe there's something that needs to happen and I'm not willing to make it happen because I've just taken no from the wrong person. You know? Okay, so noble truth number three teaches us that there is a way of transforming our suffering. I suppose that's a bit like listening to our inner child. Do you feel like Buddhism's helping you to listen to your inner voice? As you say, listen to that inner child inside of you. Definitely. I feel confident that it just gives you a foundation to speak from. It's like a platform that I'm not the only one who feels this way. Of course, there's been millions of people who have felt the same way. But maybe they didn't have the exact terminology or the spiritual grounding to believe in themselves. And I feel mm. like Buddha empowers the individual to realize their own Buddha nature and that they are essentially the entire universe in a physical form. But not to just focus on the here and now, but also that in the here and now we have a connection to eternity that's a nirvana state of mind, right? It's a good way of articulating a way that we would naturally be, as you mentioned earlier. I'm an artist, so I have these weird ideas that I couldn't really express if I didn't know how to use a paintbrush or some kind of tool. But this is just one way of using a Zen mind in actual outward like I spoke earlier about Kung Fu and how I feel like Kung Fu is so attached to Zen Buddhism because it's an outward showing of an inward feeling and it's it's something that when you just sit and meditate you don't know how to show that to somebody but when somebody sees a Shaolin monk in training they, they understand in a different kind of visual way that there's something real here. Something's happening. He's, he's used the meditation to clear his mind so that he can then express his art in a physical form, in the physical world. Coming out the other end of the divorce process and after doing all that meditating through it, I have had a lot of people complimenting me on the the end product, oh wow Jimmy, you know, you're looking great, you lost weight. There's a transformation that happened. Yeah, yeah, outwardly people are noticing this and it does feel a little bit strange to then reply with, well yes, you know, I've been meditating so much, you know, it's not really a culturally normal thing to talk about. Well, I think I'd get a few weird looks if I said that. 
it's kind of like a butterfly going into its cocoon and coming well sorry a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and comes out as a butterfly yeah you think that's the kind of idea of meditation i think it's a good way of putting it i've heard it said that meditation for the mind is like what exercise is to the body you know the the body needs movement to improve and the mind needs stillness you know we're thinking about a million things per day every day navigating our way through life driving the car going into the workplace i think when you when you say mind you mean shin which is heart mind it's shin is the word for heart and mind in chinese it's not just your intellectual mind it's more of like an emotional being right i just didn't have the capacity to put that label on it right right so you so you are right but i never thought about it in those terms does that make sense yeah i'm thinking about it in a very western way right? yeah but it's like again with the bruce lee quote he starts with empty your mind mm. Before he starts to talk, he says, empty your mind. He's challenging you to be still. So the stillness is the prerequisite to gaining a well-being. Because you're not gaining it. It's just there. You just have to realize it. You have to stop in your tracks and realize it. Yeah, it's within you. You've got to reach in and get it. That's right. Well-being is within you. It's there right now. But you're focusing on the suffering and your thoughts are racing out of control. You're clinging and you're craving, and therefore you can't experience the stillness and the nirvana, which is just the here and now. That's a true enlightenment. It's very practical. The Four Noble Truths leads to the Noble Eightfold Path. Well, let's come on to that now then. So, the Fourth Noble Truth is that the Eightfold Path will help us to escape our sufferings and achieve enlightenment. Can you speak to that at all? I used to think Buddhism was so confusing until I realized that it's just these four noble truths and a noble eightfold path, which is the middle way. And once you break it down like that, you see a path before you that you can actually walk. You might deviate slightly and make the odd mistake here or there, but ultimately, yeah, you can, you can walk that path. Yeah, but you know when you're not on the path, and by knowing that you're not on it, you know what it is. It's the process of elimination. It's, it's like taking a piece of marble and revealing the image that's inside of it, the beautiful sculpture that's already there. Okay, so that appears to be all we have time for on this week's episode. Next time, we will be going through the Eightfold Path, also known as the Middle Way, in much more detail. So until next time, good night, God bless and namaste.